I want to welcome you to White Oak this morning. Normally we read our scripture right here, and yet this morning I'm going to kind of take a different route with our time together. Uh, we will stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word, but um, I want to give you what I hope to be some very helpful context for you this morning. Uh, also, as you may notice, um, we are having some podium issues. It's currently out of order, and so meaning it shattered. And so uh, it's a long story, uh, but I'm going to try the open concept thing this morning. And uh, last night we actually had a wedding in here, and uh, it was a really, really wonderful time. And I was actually a part of doing another wedding on a different side of town uh, for a pastor friend of mine who had committed to do a wedding but then was not able to do it. And so uh, I showed up at that wedding yesterday, and um, you know, normally I'm a little bit more in the know because I'm a little more familiar, but I was kind of a fill-in last minute. And so uh, I showed up at this, this wedding, it was at this place out in Tomball for someone that none of us know. And uh, I, I got there probably about 45 minutes before the wedding started. And it was one of those, and here's the thing about weddings, right? There's two things about every wedding. They always end up going really well. It's always a special time no matter what. But number two, every single wedding, it's always like a super stressful experience. Like the day of, it's very stressful. There's a lot going on. And so, uh, so I expected both those things. I expected it was going to be a good time and it was going to be a stressful day. That's just what I was planning on, right? So I showed up there, and like a good officiant, the first thing I did was I walked back to the sound booth to go get my mic. And so I go back there, and I get in there, and as I walk into the sound booth, there's two guys in there, and they are not happy with each other, okay? And so, you know, weddings are always crazy enough. You know, the bride was, was, was really upset about something. Something had happened personally that day, so she's not feeling well. And, and then I go in here, and the, uh, the owner of the venue and the, the DJ who was uh, brought in to do all the sound stuff they were really getting on to each other, and they were like in this argument. So I walk into this room, and they're going at it, and one guy's like, well, you should have done this, and well, you should have done this, and this is standard procedure. He's like, well, that's not standard procedure to me, and so they're just going back and forth at it, and they're having an issue, and the, and the mics are not working, and it's just a very, very kind of tense moment, and I don't know what to do because I just need to get my mic because the wedding starts in 20 minutes, right? And so I'm trying to be nice, but trying to be firm, like I need to get my mic, and eventually I, I didn't know what to do. I, I kind of just stepped back, and the moment that I stepped back while they're kind of having this conversation, which is very, you know, very, very meaning to it towards each other. The wedding coordinator lady walks in, and she and she's one of those people, you know, like she's got a presence and an assertiveness in her presence, right? She's a very assertive lady, which I love. She walked in there because I guess she had heard that there was like some some arguing going on, and she walked in there and she said, "I need both of you to listen to me right now." She goes, "Listen, we are on the same team. We're on the same team." We're working the same wedding for the same bride and the same groom. And she was like, I don't know what you guys got to do, but we got to get on the same team because we're, we're doing this together. And both guys were just like silent. And they said, okay. And she walked out of the room and they gave me my mic and everything was good. <laughs> All of a sudden they were best friends. And it's so true. Like she had a great point because at the end of the day, like... A lack of unity does nothing for anybody, right? I mean, frustration, anger, resentment, bitterness, one-upping each other. Has that ever produced really any good in the history of humanity? No. It's not only bad to have, like, issues with people. What's even worse is when you have issues within your own party, issues within your own team. Did you know that the most, uh, the, the, the war in American history with the most casualties is the Civil War. 
obviously, because both sides were Americans fighting each other. Did you know that the Civil War, that the amount of people that lost their lives in the Civil War, that if you counted up all of the casualties from America for World War II, World War I, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, you added all those together, it would be less than the amount of Americans that lost their lives during the Civil War. It's powerful. And as a church, one of the things that a disciple of Jesus Christ is devoted to is unity. We're devoted to, to one another. We're, we're devoted, you know, last week we talked about worship and how like worship is, is placing ultimate value on God. And when you place ultimate value on God, then you worship him. This is kind of the counterpart sermon to that sermon. Because the same way we talked about worship is ultimately valuing God, that unity in the church is placing significant value on other people. All of the, the scriptures are summed up in love God and love people. And unity in the church is not about a agreeing on everything, but it's about realizing that a disciple of Jesus is devoted to loving their brothers and their sisters in Christ. I've heard it said that what builds an empire or a movement is not power or might, but it is unity. And I want to give you a beautiful example of this before we read our text this morning. If you have your Bible, open to Acts chapter 2, verses 42, and just hold your place there, because I want to give you some context that I really think is going to make this come alive for you. So what you have to understand about Acts chapter 2 is that uh, the early Christian church found themselves in the midst of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was not only the most powerful nation on earth at that time, it was the most powerful nation or empire in the history of humanity. And so the Roman Empire was this far-expanding empire in the world, and the church in Acts is this new movement, this new Christian sect, that is like almost a grain of sand on the beach of the Roman Empire. And, and the reason why uh, Acts chapter 2 happens the way it is is because the church was beginning to face persecution. Because one of the things that the Roman Empire did, and, and some of this may sound familiar to you, the Roman Empire was able to get far-stretching unity by taking all of the cultures, the practices, and the religions of their entire territory and synchronizing them together. So if you were in Rome, you had two options in terms of who you could worship, because they kind of controlled that. You could worship, number one, the emperor, so you could worship the political forces of the day, or what they would do is they would go into all the different lands and they would find their gods and they would kind of synchronize them together. They, they created these things across the land called the temples of the gods and they would kind of put everyone's gods in this, in this one area. And what they would do is they would tell all these foreign people that, you know, your god is, yeah, you're praying to him, yeah, you're worshiping him, but we kind of all really worship the same god. We're kind of all on the same page. And so there was like this pluralistic kind of um, synchronizing of all the gods and all the beliefs and this, consequentially, was why Jesus Christ was so controversial and one of the main reasons he was crucified. Because in a world of pluralism, in a world of anything goes, in a world of everyone is just, can do anything they want, worship whatever God they want, Jesus Christ comes and says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and I am God. And I've come to bring you abundant life. And this didn't fit with the pluralistic narrative of the day. And so here's what happens. They crucify Jesus. But then the church in Acts emerges. 
And so it makes sense that if they crucified Jesus for claiming to be the one true God, that when this Christian church in Acts, this, this new sect emerges claiming the same thing about him that he claimed about himself, it makes sense that the Roman Empire would persecute and would go after the Christians. And so Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, th- this passage that we often refer to as the fellowship of believers, it is written in the context of them beginning to face persecution for the things that they're believing. They, they would not bow down to the emperor. They would not water down their faith in Jesus. They would not be told that kind of everyone worships the same God and, and every different God permits all these different things. They said, no, there's, there is a holy life. There is one way to live. There is one true God and he is perfect and he is holy and he has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And so the Roman Empire didn't like this and even a lot of the religious people didn't like this. So they begin kind of leaning in on them together and they're facing persecution and they're, they're losing jobs. You, you read the book of Acts, people are getting martyred for their faith. People are getting thrown in prison for their faith. And so in this moment of intense persecution, what the church in Acts does is they begin to unify together. And regardless of what you believe this morning, here's the, here's the, crazy, here's the craziest fact. That what you're reading to morning in, this morning in Acts chapter 2 you are, are reading logically the beginning of the greatest movement in the history of humanity. Even if you're not a Christian this morning, this is the greatest movement in the history of the world. There are some two billion people in the world today who claim to follow Jesus. This small little sect, this, this church in Acts chapter 2, which was a, a grain of sand on the beach of the Roman Empire outlasted the Roman Empire by a long shot and began the greatest movement historically in the history of humanity. And the case that I want to make this morning is that they were able to do all of this, not because they were powerful in man's eyes, but because they were united and unified in their love of Jesus Christ and their love for one another. And the case I want to make this morning is you and I have that same opportunity here today in Houston, Texas in 2015. So with that context, with all of that background, with everything that's going on with persecution, I want you to stand with me. Let's read Acts chapter 2 together through that lens. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God bless this word. May we see it at this time. I want to zone in on verse 44 because, once again, we read this, and in our culture, in our world, we take a really general approach to it, right? Verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, 
and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We often read that and we think general homeless, general needs. And while I am positive and absolutely certain that the early church was helping people generally who were in need, a lot of the historical commentators that I have read about this text say that historically what this was really referring to was that as, as the Roman Empire was beginning to, to bear down on this movement, right? Because there are places in this world, and I've had the, the opportunity last summer to go to one of them, like a closed country to the gospel. There's really places in this world where like when you go there and you become a Christian, you lose everything. Like you lose your family, you can lose your job, you can lose your possessions, you can lose your standing in the society, you lose everything, right? And this was a pluralistic society with people claiming that they had the truth. And so people began losing things. They began losing family, losing their jobs. And so within this community, what you saw forming was a guy, oh, wait, 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 you don't have food? Well, I, I, I make food, so let me give you some food. Oh, wait, you, uh, uh, you don't have a place to stay? I, I know how to, how to create places to stay. As everyone had a need, they were distributing the proceeds of what they were making to anybody in the community who had a need. And so as this counterculture was was forming within this Roman Empire, they were beginning to provide for one another the things that they had a need for based upon the things that they had been given. Everyone was using their gifts to meet a shortcoming in somebody else's life. I've heard it described by, by one commentator that Acts 2 was a survival technique for the early church. It was a survival technique. Like, like if they didn't do this, if they didn't come together, have all things in common, if they didn't sell their possessions and give the proceeds to all as any had need, the church would not have made it. And so what I want to argue this morning is that unity in the church, us walking together and loving each other and being there for one another, it's not a matter of having a little bit better of a church. I believe that anyone who truly follows Jesus Christ, who reads these scriptures, will believe that unity is an essential trait for the good news to advance in this world. That if we are going to be a part of God recreating this world, this like amazing message, the gospel message, it's, it's the best news ever told. That God loves us and that he sent his son to die for us and that he, he rose him again. And, and we, are, we are now right with God and we can enter into a relationship with him and love him and he can love us. Like, like that news that we carry, it, it needs a unified church driving it. And so what we see is that a disciple of Jesus is devoted to unity or love for one another, but they're devoted to the unity of the local church. A follower of Jesus is not divisive. They're not a slanderer. A follower of Jesus is not thirsty for their justice. A follower of Jesus is a unifying soul, is a unifying spirit who wants to love their brothers and their sisters within the church for their good and for God's glory. And so the church in Acts was devoted in a spirit of love for one another, uh, but they were also devoted in unifying their gifts. Uh, In the book of Acts, what you see is some people have the gift of teaching, and so they're they're using that gift. In Acts chapter 2, you see some people have possessions that they're willing to give up so that other people can have things that they need. 
In the book of Acts, you see people meeting the needs of the other. And the beauty of, of this image is that unity is so much more than just being nice to each other. That's a big part of it, like being nice and loving. That's, that's important. But unity has depth. And I love this phrase, that the diversity of our gifts finds unity within our mission. The diversity of our gifts finds unity within our mission. Look around you. There's a lot of people who are very different than you in this room. We're very different. We have different personalities. We have different gifts. We need the introverts just as much as the extroverts. I want to affirm my introvert friends out there. I know it's hard sometimes. I know getting in the assembly is tough because you've got to see people and shake hands and small talk. I want to say thank you for that. Um, I don't struggle with that, um, but I'm an extrovert, so I can annoy people. And so, like, so you help me in that sense. You, you give me some self-awareness that I often lack, but we just work together. All the different Myers-Briggs personality types, you're all necessary. Everybody's needed. Uh, Paul talks about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. Uh, I, I want to read this because I love the way Paul says it. Paul is such a pragmatist when it comes to so many things. He's talking about spiritual gifts. For the church in Corinth is having some issues, and I don't want to go too deep into it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Paul says, uh, think about unity as I say this, okay? Think about unity and walking together and giving to each other as, as they have a need. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given, let me read that again, to each, including you, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then continue down to verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, and so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks or Americans, slaves or free, and all who were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. A follower of Jesus Christ is devoted to unity in the local church, not just in loving the other, but in finding the gifts that you have been given by God's grace and employing them in the church. And that doesn't necessarily mean in the service, like, you know, like, like sometimes I think in the church, there's like three gifts. There's like preaching, there's music, and I don't know, being a greeter. I don't know, like there's like a three spiritual gifts that are like a Sunday school teacher or something like that. You know, we, we have like the four gifts, right? There's nothing else. And that's why I always like to highlight, man, there's so many things that happen in this church that are so beyond this service. There's so many things that have to happen, so many people that have to be a part of this. There's so many different things that go on. And even outside of the service, from the the day-to-day activities of the church to service projects to small groups, I mean, everything that we do from like mission trips to service opportunities, we're having a Thanksgiving meal in two weeks that we're going to gather together. People are cooking the food. Uh, The women's retreat is next weekend, and that's been a ton of work, and I haven't done anything in regard to that. I mean, like there's a lot of things that happen in this church. And what Paul says is that our diversity in gifting finds unity in our mission. See, our hearts are one, but our gifts are many. Some of us have personality gifts. 
Some people have uh, financial gifts. Maybe you've made money. You can bless the, the, the advancement of the gospel and the mission of the church financially. Some of you have technical gifts, and maybe, maybe you're, you're a helper, or you're nice, or you're compassionate. Some of you are counselors, and you offer wisdom and advice. Some of you can teach the Bible in the various settings we have here. Some of you are musical. Some of you are administrative. We've got a whole, like, I, I love how, like, in this church, like, we have, like, the finance team, and then we have, like, the global missions team. And I can't tell you how different those two groups are, right? And the conversations are so different, right? But they're so essential, right? They're, they're both needed, even in the church, we've desired to build a teaching team. And so you'll see often people that are not myself up here preaching because they, they have those gifts, they, they have those abilities. And it blesses you to get a different perspective. It blesses me to get a week off. We're all working together to have a great local church so that the people in this community and beyond can eventually experience the power of the gospel through God working through us. If you're here today, you are so important. And I think the main thing, because people always ask me, like, well, what's my spiritual gift, or how do I figure that out, right? What I think is the most important thing in terms of finding your spiritual gift is first to realize that you are a gift to the church. That Scripture says that you are a gift to the church. And I believe that when you realize that you are a gift to the church, the things that you're good at are gifts to the local church, I believe that you'll be motivated to find out what your spiritual gifts are. But the first thing you have to realize is that you are a gift. Everything that you are, everything that you have is a blessing to this community. I hope that everything that I receive from God, every gift, every ability, every possession, I hope that it blesses you all. I hope that it, I hope that it increases your faith in the gospel. I hope that it, it builds you up and it makes you happy and leads you to glorify God. Everything I am for you and everything that you are for me. When it comes to finding your gifts, there's a lot of things you can do. You can go into scripture. There's lists all throughout the Bible of different spiritual gifts. Um, but I think to find your spiritual gifts, you, you read the Bible, you read about those passages, you pray through it. That's number one. So you, you, you go to Scripture and you, you pray about it and, and see what gifts or, or people in the Bible that you relate with. Maybe you're like King David or King Saul, or you're like, uh, you know, Paul, or you're like Peter, or you're like John, or, or, or whoever. Like you say, I, I kind of see myself in them. Maybe you discern gifts that way. But the second thing is just like, what are you good at? Like anything, Right? Like, 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 are you good at music? Are you good at numbers? Are you good at helping people? Are you a good listener? We need a lot of listeners in this church, right? Are you a good listener? Can you make food? Do you know that we have a, a team in our church that consistently goes around and tries to visit the shut-ins in our church, the people in our body who are a part of this church, and yet they're, they're not physically able to come gather with us? Talk about a powerful gift. You have a passion for, for global missions. Do you have a passion for music? Do you have a passion for, for finances, administration? Do you have a passion for aesthetics and buildings? We all have gifts, and we're all important in the local church. And I honestly believe that our diversity finds unity within our mission. I remember, um, I think I might have used this illustration before, and I'm going to embarrass him again. Uh, I think I was like 19 years old, and um, I got assigned like a, a, a mentor. And I think I was doing music at the time. And, and the mentor that our pastor at that time assigned me was, was actually was Ken Lubeck. 
And uh, I remember I, I'd known a little bit about Ken, and the first time we got together, um, you know, I was in college, and all I cared about was, like, sports and sports and, uh, I don't know, music stuff. And Ken was like an engineer working for, like, Metro Light Rail. He had a family. I was like a single guy. And I remember thinking to myself, like, we have nothing in common. Like, like you know, I, I mean, I guess we can connect some, but we'll see. So I remember we got lunch at, at Chick-fil-A. Remember that, Ken? We got lunch at Chick-fil-A. I remember that. Yeah, I'm not making this up. And my pastor assigned me, so I, didn't, so I, wanted, to be, I wanted to submit this authority, so I, so I went and did it. And honestly, it was one of the most edifying and encouraging moments of my life. Because what I found was someone who was probably maybe different than me in a lot of ways, in a completely different stage of life, in a lot of ways with completely different values, was opening up a whole new world of perspective that I had never seen before. And I honestly believe I gained so much wisdom in those years of, of meeting with him and hearing his perspective and hearing his take on Scripture, which was very different in a lot of ways than my take on Scripture. That's one of the defining moments of my life where I look back and I'm like, you know what? We really are better together. That unity in the church, it's not just being nice to each other and and not causing drama because I'll be honest, we we have a very loving church here. Like honestly, sometimes it's hard to preach on this because I feel like a lot of you guys do this pretty well. But unity is so much more than just like being nice and high-fiving each other. It's completing each other for the advancement of the gospel. So I want to give you three quick things as we close on on how we can apply this to our lives today. Um, And once again, I've prepared these these, this week for you, and I believe in these three things. I believe that they can change your life. Number one, so if a disciple is devoted to unity in the church, right, how, how do we do this? Number one, believe the gospel. In Philippians chapter two, verses one through five, I want to read this. Because what Paul talks about is he talks about a unity that is birthed from Jesus, from a unity that is birthed from who he is to us. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. I love how he says that. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, in the gospel, Jesus values our well-being over his he, he values our relationship with God over his present comfort. I mean, to die on a cross is a pretty heavy task for someone who was sinless and who was blameless. And in the gospel, Jesus counted us more significant than himself. He, he valued us in that moment. He laid his life down for us. And when you believe this, this, this earth-shattering message, everything in your life changes When you receive this kind of love, when you receive the gospel, when you believe the good news, it changes the way you see everything, including your neighbor and the people that you go to church with. Church, it is hard to believe the gospel and to gossip about your brother or sister. 
it is hard to envision Jesus Christ on the cross dying for your sins and then wishing ill upon someone just because they have a different preference than you, just because they see things a little bit differently than you do. You have been saved by the gospel. You have been saved by Jesus. Because when we were sinful and quite annoying, I might add, to God for sinning and for being rebellious, it says that God still loved us. And now we transfer this love to others. I love that song that says, you're, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's, it's who you are. When, when you begin to see that God is a loving father who loves you, you begin to treat him as such. When you begin to see the people in your church as your brothers and sisters, you begin to treat them as such. When you realize that, that, that God loves all the people even outside of the church, you begin to treat them as people whom God loves and whom he pursues. When you believe the good news over everything else, you receive the love of God, you receive a new way of doing life, you receive a new family, and you begin to value unity. Number two, so the first way we can be unified is to believe the gospel. The second thing, the most simple one, is just be together, okay? Verse 44, it says, and all who believed were together. Do you know what that means in the Greek? They were together, okay? It means the same thing, right? You know how the KJV said it, the King James? And they were togetherous. I mean, same thing. They're just together. Like, like th th this is not rocket science. I remember when I was in college, um, you know, you go to college and, and you don't know anybody. And uh, I signed up because I was going to live on campus. And I filled out one of those forms where they match you with somebody. And uh, I filled out this form and they were supposed to match me up with someone who I was going to live with who had similar values and who was kind of like me. And about a week before school started, um, I met this, this guy uh, who I wanted a room with at like an orientation thing. And so I, I submitted this request that I wanted to live with him, but they didn't get it in time. And so they sent me this thing that they had done based upon the survey. And they said that your roommate is going to be this other guy named Evan Holbrook, who I'd never met. And if you know Evan Holbrook, you know today's like my best friend. But literally they paired me up with a guy who was to be my best friend. And yet I didn't know who the guy was. And so I rejected him, right? And I lived with this other guy for a whole year. And, and, and then along the course of the path, I realized that the person that they had paired me up with was like perfect and would go on to be my best friend. And I didn't get to live with him for that year because I thought that I knew better than this wonderful survey. Another good friend of mine, Mike Winters, he plays bass here a lot. Like, I was in this accountability group once, and another friend of mine wanted to bring him into that group, and I said no, I didn't, because I didn't know the guy, right? I didn't know who he was. I was like, he's going to mess up the group, you know? And, and little, little did I know he'd go on to be one of my best friends. And, and what that, is, that shows us is, like, that you have to be around people. Like, like, you can have so much chemistry, get along so well with people, and yet you have to be around people long enough to see the value See, you have to spend time with the people God puts in your life to see the value that he's trying to add to your life through them. My wife and I could have all the chemistry in the world, and if I never got the courage to ask her on the first date, it would have meant nothing. Be together. Join with us. Be a part of the things that we do. You know, sometimes the most spiritual act you can do is just show up 
Like, I know we're trying to be all spiritual and try to, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like, sometimes just like getting yourself in the same room with people says that all who believed they were together, they were present, and they were around each other. One of the best things you can do for unity is physical unity, is coming together with people. And this is the last thing. I think this is the most important one in our community, or any community. Number three, be ready to forgive. So believe the gospel, just be together, and be ready to forgive. I, I, Ephesians 4 is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Um, so much of the world would be a better place if everyone would just read Ephesians 4 and apply it to their life. But hear what Paul says in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner. He's writing this to a church. Worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all, I love this, humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul says, don't wait for everything to fall apart. Be eager. When there's conflict, be eager to resolve it. Not eager to prove you're right or that you're smart or that you're godly. Be eager to unify yourself with your brother or your sister in Christ. Do not wait until things are messy in this life to begin thinking through what it is like to forgive others. Begin with the idea of forgiveness in mind. And this is a great principle anywhere you go in your life. Whether it's the church, whether it's your family, whether it's your place of work, literally walk in holding on to forgiveness. Just be ready, right? It's like the like monopoly, like get out of jail free card. You know, you got that thing on hand because you know you're going to get caught in jail. And, and, and what Paul says is be eager, like be ready, okay? We're devoted to unity, and so that means we've got to be trying to do this and, and trying to fight the things that are going to pull us apart as the church. Walk in ready, be prepared, First time I ever played paintball was horrible because I played speedball. And if you know anything about speedball and paintball, speedball is basically paintball, but there's like, you're really close to each other and there's like nowhere to hide. It's like, it's like an open suicide field, right? With nowhere to hide and everyone's got like a loaded paintball gun. And the first time I ever played paintball, I played speedball, and I, it was the classic scenario where I was tying my shoe when he blew the whistle to go, right? And it was, the, I'm like, time my shirt, it's like, like, like nailing me everywhere. I literally, I kid you not, like, it's not, I, was, I literally lasted in the game two seconds. I was not a natural, right? I didn't have, like, those killer instincts, you know. I was, I wouldn't make it in the wild, as, as I've often said. So, like, it, it, and the thing about it is, like, you, I wasn't ready. And so when you're not ready in life, what happens? You get lit up. That's what happens when you're not ready. When you walk into a community and you have no concept of what it's like to forgive somebody who wrongs you, man, you're in trouble. If you walk into marriage and you have no concept of what it's like to forgive somebody, you're in trouble. You're trying to raise kids and and you have no concept for how to be patient with people and forgive them when they're not logical, when they can't just do everything you tell them to do because their minds aren't as developed, like you're going to get lit up. Be ready to forgive. When someone offends you or hurts you, don't be thirsty for justice because Jesus was not thirsty for our justice when we sinned against him. He wasn't like, no, no, we gotta have justice has got to be served here because they have offended a holy and perfect God. He said, no, no, I'm going to die on the cross for you. If we need resolution, 
We seek it peacefully, reasonably, and quietly. I would make it safe to say that if you've got issues in the church and everybody knows about it, it's not a good thing. Another way of doing this, another way, is you crush gossip, okay? Gossip is like a cockroach. It's gross and it needs to be squashed. I know it's a crazy analogy, but you will never forget that. You will never forget that. Gossip is like a cockroach. It's gross and needs to be squashed. It's also like a cockroach because it has no value in life whatsoever. And I know there's people who try to like, no, well, no, they could survive atomic bombs and all that. I, I don't care. Humanity would be just fine without cockroaches. They could, be, they could be gone tomorrow. They could be extinct and the world would be so much of a better place. Especially for girls. That's, that's what I believe. And if you don't squash it, it's going to have a bunch of babies. Amen? Kind of like gossip, right? Right? Notice it said crush gossip. Because we're eager to maintain the spirit of unity. Not like, well, if it gets out of hand, if it becomes like wildfire. You know, that's the problem with wildfires is they wait too long to put them out. And then it's like, you, you, you can't put it out. Be ready to forgive. Be proactive in terms of unity, not reactive. So believe the gospel. Be together and be ready to forgive. Because a disciple of Jesus is devoted to unity in the body. This week, I want to challenge you to read Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. I want to challenge you to read Ephesians 4 and Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8. I want to challenge you to read these, these passages of unity in the body and to begin to put names and faces in your mind to these concepts that we read in Scripture. Read these passages. Pray for people in this church. Pray, pray for the global church, for people all across the city at advancing the name of Jesus. And don't be surprised when your heart begins to yearn for the good of other people outside of yourself. And don't be surprised when you find this joy in your soul that is so unusual because you find that loving other people and seeing their good and seeing their well-being is one of the things that we were created to do and that it is one of the ways that God works through us to redeem this world. Don't be surprised when you begin to love people when you're passing them at Kroger or you're, you're at your job. Don't be surprised when you're reading these passages and you're praying for people and you're gathering with people and you're believing the gospel and you're ready to forgive. Don't be surprised when you begin to love people in the way that Jesus loves them. I want to close with the words of Jesus this morning. This is four verses and this is Jesus praying to God the Father. I want to close this talk on unity by reading a prayer that he prayed. So I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this time. I want to read this prayer over you and then I want to pray for us. John 17, starting in verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me 
and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you, Father, have loved me. Father, I thank you for this word this morning. I thank you how refreshing the idea of unity is in a world that is very broken and very divided. God, it just seems like the television is just a place that, that tries to segment us into different groups, whether it be political parties or, or anything else. We're, we're constantly being divided on social issues, on the internet. We're constantly being asked to, to, to choose a side, to, to be on the right side, Lord, and yet you have called us in the church to not divide ourselves, but to unite ourselves. God, I pray for the areas in which we are not unified, God, that you would seek those out in our hearts and that you would cause us to, to highly value our brothers and sisters in the assembly. I pray that you'd bless us with peace and joy and love and unity. And I pray that as we, we share this meal of communion together from the same plates of the same bread and the same juice, I pray that it would bless us together. Father, unite us for your glory in this world, that we could be a part of this wonderful work that you are doing. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.